Well, uh, thank you all for your attendance today, your attention today. It's been a wonderful time for me, for sure, and I think lots of other people. Uh, and uh, we hope it's the beginning of uh, many more of these kinds of events. Uh, when we went to put it together, Nick and I, as I said in the first, in my introduction of the program at the beginning of the day, uh, we did get help from the Blank Foundation people, and we had a, a lot of fun talking about what the, what the program would look like and uh, what some of the topics would be. And uh, Nick and I talked about who we'd like to get to speak. And as we made up this list, we were just astounded that people kept saying yes, uh, and not that we paid that much. And uh, the one person I thought, well, it's a real long shot to get him to say yes, but he did, and that's Matt Ridley. Uh, I think it's because he wanted to come and see me and be here, and but it, it, it's not. His son goes to Berkeley, and he, he, he got to see his son, so I think that's the main reason he is with us. Uh, you can read Matt's biography. Uh, uh, if you do, uh, you'll see that there's a, a, a list of books, and I can guarantee you I've read them all. Pick any one of them, and you will be delighted with the read you're going to get. Now, I like a couple of them better than others, and if you'd like the book review, I could give you that. But uh, I can assure you that there's a reason his books have sold millions of copies. I would have to write a million books to get him to sell a million copies, I think. Uh, uh, and then you will also note that uh, he has he served in the House of Lords, and uh, a friend of mine got to have uh, lunch with Matt in the House of Lords dining room and told me, don't miss that. And then Matt told me he he had retired from the House of Lords, and I was just, uh, just uh, so despondent because I was going to miss my uh, uh, time in the House of Lords dining room, but he, he kept those privileges. Uh, there are lots of other things I could t say about Matt, but I'll just give you one tidbit that, that isn't anywhere in his biography and uh, that not many people know about. But Matt is, is tall, and that, that really helped me in my mission. Uh, when we were fishing together in the, in the uh, uh, wilderness of Yellowstone National Park, not long after the fires of 2008, but long enough, uh, uh, 88, uh, not, uh, not, not that long, but long enough that the roots of the trees had, had begun to uh, uh, rot, which meant the trees were you know, kind of fun to push on, and we probably violated some federal law by pushing them over. But we had such great fun getting a hold of these big trees that were burned, rocking back and forth until finally crash, and Matt and I would walk on to the next one. Having his uh, height really helped a lot. So in addition to being a great author, a lord, he is one of the great tree pushers in Yellowstone Park, <laughs> Matt Ridley. Thank you. Thank you, Terry. Um, I suspect we'll be arrested now uh, because of that story. Uh, and uh, just to reassure you, the food in the House of Lords is pretty second rate, so you haven't missed much. Um, uh, uh, look, thank you very, very much, particularly to Nick and Terry for organizing today. I've had a fantastic time. I've learned a lot, uh, huge food for thought. Um, I hope there are more meetings of this kind. I think it's very valuable. Thank you also to the Blank Family Foundation for supporting it and to Hoover for invi inviting me here. I'm, I'm enormously grateful. Um, and what I want to do in the next half hour is um, say something so heretical and blasphemous that it would get me howled down in Parliament, it would get me cancelled at any university, it would get me expelled from polite society, may even get me thrown out of this room. Um, and that is that there are benefits from carbon dioxide emissions, as well as costs that these benefits may exceed the costs of carbon dioxide emissions already and may do so for some decades to come. And that that's true even if you leave out the, you know, the benefits of using fossil fuels, like for flying in airplanes. You know, I'm talking about the benefits of the emissions, not the, the, the things that come with the emissions. Um, so um, I don't want you to sort of 
think that I necessarily believe this, right? Um, you know, if you, you could just think that I'm playing devil's advocate here, uh, because I think it would be just as interesting um, to, to, to have a look at that case and see where it takes us. And in particular, you know, I want to hear from people at the end of this talk who believe in markets or mandates and tell me how should we deal with this information if it turns out to be true that the benefits of carbon dioxide are exceeding the emissions. I think that would be quite an interesting uh, conversation to have. Um, I'm not really going to talk about the energy transition. It's not going very well in my country, as you can see. Um, uh, but there will be, obviously, implications for that story. And, of course, the guiding... The guiding uh, philosophy that we have to think about is that the, the, the one of trade-offs, that there isn't such a thing as a perfect silver bullet where everybody's happy and we can all go home. Every solution is going to have trade-offs, uh, and the, as Thomas Sowell says, the best thing you can do is get the best trade-off that you can, uh, and that's a great Hoover principle that we need to think about. So let's just start listing the costs and benefits of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, of there being more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than there was before. Um, the costs, well, we know what they are supposed to be, rising sea level, uh, longer heat waves, worse floods, more severe droughts, uh, more frequent storms, more forest fires, the acidification of the oceans. These are the kinds of things we've been hearing about as the potential costs of there being extra carbon dioxide in the air. What are the benefits? Well, the big one is global greening, which I'll talk about at some length. But in addition to that, there is global greening in the ocean. There is uh, increasing productivity of ocean uh, phytoplankton and algae and so on. Uh, more water use efficiency. On the whole, plants less use less water or lose less water um, if there's more carbon dioxide in the air for a given amount of growth. Uh, that, of course, in turn means higher yields for agriculture, which in turn means less land devoted to farming, which means bigger nature reserves. Um, reduced cold deaths, if we do get warming, there will be fewer people dying in winter, uh, longer growing seasons, and it doesn't really count as a benefit of carbon dioxide, but you know, if we were to conclude that the benefits exceeded the costs, then we could avoid some of these massive decarbonisation costs that we've heard so much about today. And it's worth going right back to the start of this story, to Svante Arrhenius, the guy who first said that we were seeing a, an increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and this was causing warming um, uh, in the, at the end of the um, 19th century, because he said that it was probably a good thing. By the influence of the increasing percentage of carbonic acid in the atmosphere, we may hope to enjoy ages with more equable and better climates. So the idea that there's benefits here um, is quite a long, has quite a long tradition, but it's hardly ever talked about uh, in the uh, common uh, uh, media today. So we are seeing more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, as we all know. We've gone from below 0.03% of the atmosphere consisting of carbon dioxide to more than 0.04%. And one of the things that uh, Charles Keeling, who first produced this curve, noticed in about 1985 was that the amplitude of that seasonal oscillation was increasing. And what that implied was that carbon dioxide was being absorbed from the atmosphere, more carbon dioxide was being absorbed from the, from the atmosphere every uh, summer and more released every winter, every year. And that implied there was more green vegetation to do this work. And that was the first hint of global greening. It then became possible to measure it on the ground in various ways, increased growth rates of plants and so on. Um, and it, of course, is something we know about, that if you put more carbon dioxide into a greenhouse, plants grow faster. This is, uh, last summer I was lucky enough, uh, James Dyson invited me to visit one of his farms in Lincolnshire and show uh, me the robots that pick the strawberries. He made me sign a non-disclosure agreement, so I've blacked out the robot, um, but I don't think he'd mind a picture of him in the, in, in the greenhouse. And what I'm 
drawing your attention to, of course, is that there's a polythene pipe running through the greenhouse there, as there is in every commercial greenhouse in the world, pumping carbon dioxide into that greenhouse to make the plants grow faster. In general, you want to keep a commercial greenhouse at around 1,000 parts per million of CO2, two and a half times what the atmosphere is uh, outside here today. Um, because if you don't do that, your plants don't grow fast enough, you don't get enough strawberries, and so on. The robot, by the way, p tells whether a strawberry is red and picks it. Obviously, that's its job. Um, so we've known about the CO2 fertilization effect for a very long time. Um, experiments in laboratories, but also free air concentration experiments in the natural environment have shown exactly how much faster uh, plants grow at different levels of carbon dioxide, right up to 800 parts per million, which is twice what we have today. The effect is stronger in the C3 plants, which have a sort of um, just-in-time approach to carbon dioxide than the C4 plants, which kind of store it up. Um, uh, luckily, most crops are C3. Maize is not. It's a C4 plant, but rice, wheat, and um, uh, many others are C C3. Um, uh, and so, but the effect is seen in both types of plants, albeit more in C3 plants. So it's it's a well-established phenomenon by many thousands of experiments over the years. Although, in a strange way, the this, is, this science has sort of petered out in a funny way. If you, most of these experiments were done a couple of decades ago. Nobody seems to be doing them anymore. Uh, and around uh, six or seven years ago, Jesse Orzabel at Rockefeller University Drew my, drew my attention to a, an online um, video of a talk given at Boston University by Ranga Mainani, uh, which was um, talking about being able to pick up this phenomenon through satellite data, looking at the um, data uh, from satellites and, and, and analyzing it in such a way that you could tell which parts of the world were getting greener and which parts were getting less green. And this was one of the charts that he showed in that uh, talk. Um, and it showed that there was an awful lot of the world getting an awful lot greener and not much of the world getting less green. <laughs> and the data he showed in that talk uh, talked about a 14% increase in the gross productivity of the land area of the planet and that this was happening on all types of land, all ecosystems from not just agricultural ones but broadly forests, grasslands, shrublands and so on. Um, now, I thought that was quite interesting, so I wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal about this, um, uh, which I think was the first article in the mainstream media about the phenomenon of global greening as measured by satellites. Um, and that got a certain amount of attention. I thought it was quite interesting. Um, uh, but. Rangamainani's team didn't publish uh, these results for a while, but a few papers started to come out uh, about this work. Uh, Randall Donahue in Australia um, analyzed it and teased out how much of this greening was due to CO2 and how much to other factors, and showed that in arid areas like the Sahel region of uh, Africa or Western Australia, the effect was particularly strong. So the global greening story began to gather sort of coverage, as it were. And finally, uh, Rangamaineni's team did publish their results in 2016. The lead author was Zai-Chin Zhu from Beijing University, who'd um, been the, uh, the lead researcher on this work. And in it, he said, that the greening over the past 33 years reported in this study is equivalent to adding a green continent about two times the size of mainland USA. Two green continents the size of America in 30 years. That's quite a lot of new green vegetation for planet Earth. They were also able to give an estimate of how much of this greening was down to fertilizer use, how much was down to more rainfall, how much was down to warming. Uh, but 70% of it was just the carbon dioxide fertilization effect itself, not any of these other factors. So again, quite big numbers here. Curiously, when they announced this study from Boston University, they put out a press release with it, which named me. 
It said that I was likely to misinterpret these, these figures as saying that, that this was a good thing. Uh, and it named me alongside Rupert Murdoch, who I have no idea why we deserve this attention. But, um, uh, you know, there you go. Fame at last in a press release about this. Um, anyway, this is NASA's uh, sort of uh, 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 summary image of where we're seeing greening and where we're seeing browning. And some parts of the world are going in the wrong direction. Notice there are some parts that are red, but the vast majority of the planet has been getting greener over the last 30 years. How much does this, how much is this worth? Um, well, Let's talk about crops for a start. Um, some estimates, Craig Idso has, has had a crack at, at estimating the improvement, uh, the, the, the monetary value of this improvement in crop yield as a result of carbon dioxide itself. And it runs in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year globally. That's quite a lot. Um, now, it's not the only reason crop yields are going up, of course. The bigger reason is use of fertilizer and pesticides and machinery. And and so on, but it is contributing significantly to the, the ability of these plants to respond uh, to those inputs. And papers have now come out showing that this is also uh, heading off any increase in uh, drought sensitivity of crops. Um, basically, the dotted lines on these charts show what will happen in this century to the ability of crops to withstand drought as the world gets hotter, and they assume pretty rapid heating in this scenario. The solid lines show what will happen if there's extra carbon dioxide in the air as well as heat, which of course there is going to be if there's, there's heat. Uh, and that shows that the crops are becoming more, heat, more drought resistant um, because of the carbon dioxide effect. And this makes sense because they don't have to open their pores to absorb as much CO2, so they lose less water. Um, plants are always in this um, strange position where they, they lose water in order to gain CO2. So there's a, there's, a mess, there's a massive help for agriculture in arid lands coming out of this phenomenon. Notice that they used RCP 8.5 for this study. I'll come back to that. Neil mentioned it a little bit earlier as well. And Jesse Orzabel has done some wonderful calculations to show just what an extraordinary job we've done uh, as a species over the last 100 years in decoupling production on farmland from the acreage that we need to grow it. Uh, the US is planting less acres under corn than it did in 1900, but it's producing a heck of a lot more corn from that area. And as I say, the big contribution to that is nitrogen fertilizer and, of course, tractors and pesticides and all the other things, but it's being assisted by carbon dioxide fertilization effect. So, you know, should farmers be compensating oil companies for the CO2 that they're being supplied? It's quite a thought, isn't it? Find me a market that'll make that work. Good luck with that. Um, and overall, this decoupling is resulting in the fact that we have now, according to Jesse's calculations, but also uh, our world in data has now shown this, Hannah Ritchie, um, we have now passed peak farmland. We are farming fewer acres every year. Now, most of this is because we're reducing the amount of pasture land rather than arable land. Uh, if we were um, to give up on the biofuels, we'd be reducing arable land pretty smartly too. Now, that's big. That's 3 million square kilometers of land that has already been spared for nature from the farm. That's roughly the area of India. These are big numbers to think about. Now, let's switch to the oceans. All the studies that have been done on land showing greater productivity as a result of CO2 can be repeated in the oceans uh, for phytoplankton, for um, uh, uh, 
uh, marine algae, for eelgrasses, and also for corals, which of course are photosynthesizing organisms because they have um, symbiotic photosynthesizers in their tissues. And this is just one example of one study on one coral species in the Caribbean showing the green line that up to 600 parts per million, uh, there is still a significant increase in the photosynthetic rate of this coral, that it does better at growing um, as a result of the extra carbon dioxide dissolved in the water. But the blue line is also quite important because it has been a meme of uh, climate alarmism that dissolving more carbon dioxide in the sea is going to make it more less alkaline and maybe even acid in places, and that is going to make it harder for corals to lay down calcium skeletons because they need high pH to do that. Is that true? The blue line shows no. At 600 parts per million, uh, this coral is still laying down more calcium. Why? because it's calcium carbonate that they lay down. The, carbonic, the carbonate comes from carbon dioxide. It dissolved in the sea. So the, the slight change in the pH of the ocean, um, which, was thought, which was quite a big scare 10 years ago, has largely been demolished uh, as a problem. Um, by the way, I think this is about as good an example as I can find of how not to draw a graph. <laughs> How not to draw, join up four points with a line. <laughs> but there we are. What about the effect of warming itself? Well, one of the things is that it's going to cause fewer people to die in cold seasons. In almost all countries, more people die in the cold season than the hot season. That's true in Thailand and Greece and hot countries like that, that winter deaths still exceed summer deaths. Um, and as Bjorn Lomborg has summarized the data here, uh, about uh, eight to 9% of the of uh, deaths every year are down to cold weather in some form or other, and about 0 to 1% are down to hot weather. That hot weather death rate is going up and the cold weather death rate is going down, with the result that every year about 166,000 people are being saved by warming, by the warming of the planet. It's not a huge effect in the grand scheme of things, but it's significant. And let's not forget that we often hear about the Arctic amplification of warming, meaning that it gets the warming is happening more rapidly in the Arctic. But of course, the corollary of that is that the warming is happening less rapidly in the tropics where most people live. These are three statements taken off a US government website summarizing the, the truth about greenhouse gas warming, as opposed to other kinds of warming, is that it will do and does result in colder places warming faster than warmer places. That's Montana in the winter. Uh, colder seasons warming faster than warmer seasons. And colder times of day are warming more than warmer times of day. So at night in Alaska in winter is going to change much more than daytime in Lagos in the summer. I don't Lagos doesn't have a summer, but you get the point. Um, so, so as greenhouse as greenhouse warming is not, you know, when you hear about how hard it's going to hit people in poor countries, you have to take into account this um, tropical amelioration of the phenomenon. Still, let's talk about the downsides of warming um, and see how they measure up compared with predictions. Uh, this is uh, the summary of five different measures of global uh, temperature anomaly. Um, and yes, there's been steady warming over the last 40 years. Um, it comes out, I think, at about 0.17 degrees per decade. You can argue about the points on this. Uh, that's a lot less than we were told it was going to be. It's not more, it's less. This is what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said in their first report in 1990, that they predict, that by the word was the word they used, um, about 0.3 degrees per decade and with an uncertainty range of 0.2 to 0.5. Well, it's been below 0.2. It's been 0.17, as I say. So um, uh, the impact, the warming impact of carbon dioxide has been less than we expected it to be. 
And John Christie makes this point when he says that I've looked at 73 climate models going back to 1979, and every single one predicted more warming than happened in the real world. I'm going to run through the other downsides, but Steve has already done it, so uh, I'll do this very quickly. Um, you know the story. Sea level is rising at something between three and four millimeters a year, a foot per century. Um, there's a little um, uh, 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 clip from a uh, AP story in 1989 saying that entire nations are going to be wiped off the face of the earth by sea level rise by the year 2000. Didn't happen. Um, hurricane strength globally, the tropical cyclones, uh, this is the uh, Roger Pielke's uh, calculation of that. Just can't see a trend there. I, you might be able to, I can't. Um, droughts, the percentage of the world in extreme or moderate drought on the whole going down, which is roughly what you'd expect in a warmer world. The oceans are a bit warmer. There's a bit more moisture in the air. Rainfall is a bit more, um, is a bit heavier. Um, floods, this is US flood damage as a percent of GDP, which is of course the thing that really matters, uh, going rather steeply downwards. Lots of reasons for that, some of them nothing to do with climate. Um, I think this was the exact chart that uh, um, Steve showed, so I can speed past that one. Fires, the global area burned every year has been going down um, over the last 20 years. And as someone else, uh, maybe Steve, someone else mentioned today, uh, the number of people killed in floods, storms, droughts, wildfires, and extreme temperatures uh, has gone down spectacularly, not because weather's got safer, but because we've got better prediction, better shelter, better transport, and so on. And 2022 is, was a pretty safe year in terms of climate-related deaths. So. Weighing up those pros and those cons, Indra Gaklani wrote a paper a few years ago, which I helped him to edit, called Carbon Dioxide, The Good News, with a forward by Freeman Dyson for the Global Warming Policy Foundation in London. And in it, he said this, models used to, over to influence policy on climate change have overestimated the rate of warming, underestimated the direct benefits of carbon dioxide, overestimated the harms from cl climate change, things like storms and so on, and underestimated human capacity to adapt so as to capture those benefits while reducing the harms. That's quite a big charge to make against this whole field. And it's worth bearing in mind that uh, we are indulging in policies that have a downside themselves uh, and that on the whole have been hitting poor people harder than rich people. After all, renewable energy uh, subsidies tend to be captured by the wealthy. Energy as a cost of, as a proportion of income is higher among the poor. Um, tomorrow, so tomorrow's, today's poor are carrying the, the cost of the energy transition and benefiting tomorrow's wealthy on the whole. Um, there's a billion people without electricity, and they are now routinely um, refused support by the West for the kinds of fossil fuel company uh, subsidies for things like propane cooking stoves that could make a big difference. Three million people die every year because of indoor pollution, which is basically caused by cooking over wood and dung. Um, half a million lives could be saved yearly by replacing wood and charcoal stoves in Africa, said a recent headline. Um, and let's not forget uh, that the biofuel policies were justified entirely in terms of uh, climate change, even though they didn't even make sense as a way of reducing um, CO2 emissions. And they continue to this day. Some of the wheat from my own farm gets sold to be make, made into ethanol, despite my protests. So let's go back to my summary of the costs and benefits and run through them. Yes, sea level is rising, but it's pretty slow. Uh, longer heat waves, yes, I think we can say those are happening. Um, the 
uh, floods not getting worse, droughts not getting worse, storms not getting worse, forest fires not getting worse, ocean acidification not really happening. Uh, so it's not a terribly convincing list of costs. Whereas on the benefits side, global greening is huge, ocean productivity is going up, water use efficiency is improving, we're sparing land from, uh, it's helping us to spare land uh, for nature, um, we're reducing cold deaths, we've got longer growing seasons, and we could potentially avoid the huge costs of decarbonisation. Ah, but what about Pascal's wager? You remember Blaise Pascal, he's the chap who said that if you don't believe in, if you believe in God and turn up and, and you're wrong and he doesn't exist, nothing ventured, nothing gained, it doesn't really matter much. But if you don't believe in God and you turn up and he says, sorry mate, you can't come to heaven, you're going to hell for eternity, then that's quite a big cost. So you might as well believe in God to be on the safe side. That was his calculation. Um, substitute disaster for God and you get the point. You often hear this argument, yes it's not happening very badly but what if we suddenly hit some unknown tipping point and it turns out to be catastrophic after all? Then surely it's worth paying anything to avoid such a disaster. Well, the problem with that argument is it applies to every other disaster we can imagine. There was an asteroid had a near miss with Earth the other day. It wasn't that big. It wouldn't have wiped out civilization, but the next one might be bigger. Um, there's a supervolcano under Yellowstone, isn't there? It hasn't gone off for about 600,000 years. It usually goes off every 600,000 years. When it does, it dumps... I don't know, 12 feet of ash all across America, right? Good luck with that. Um, we've got nuclear war on the brink of happening, thank you, Neil, in um, uh, Ukraine. I'm just not your fault, but, you know, uh, it's a possibility. Um, uh, why we, we could have a very, very, very severe pandemic? Why aren't we building hospitals all over the place to get ready for a massive pandemic? We don't take the Pascal's Wager approach to future potential catastrophes of other kinds, why should we single out this one? Um, I, w I, I wanted to say something about RCP 8.5. Uh, the scenario that, uh, uh, you know, when the, when the IPCC set up these scenarios, they said, let's have one that's completely barking mad, but at least it gives us a chance to see what will happen. Uh, and this is, uh, they said there's going to be 12 billion people on the earth. They'll have given up inventing things. They'll have mostly given up free trade. They'll have no energy efficiency improvements. Oh, and by the way, they'll have gone back to burning coal for almost everything. They'll be burning 10 times as much coal in the year 2100 as they are today. They'll be getting half their energy from coal. They'll be making aircraft fuel from coal. You know, th these were the, the, the kind of assumptions that went into RCP.5. It wasn't meant to be a realistic scenario. But you find almost every report from governments about what might happen in the future uses RCP 8.5 as the business as usual scenario. Roger Pielke has done a brilliant job of digging out just how often this um, RCP 8.5 uh, misuse happens. So the real way to do a cost-benefit analysis is to come up with a cost. How much is the net cost of carbon per tonne of carbon dioxide that we produce? And as this uh, 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 text from, taken from a website at Stanford actually shows you, uh, on the whole, it uh, doesn't really talk about net. It just talks about the cost of damages. You get the impression that there's only one side to this story. And the Obama administration came up with a number of $51 a tonne. That's been readopted by the Biden administration. My government has taken a different approach. It said, let's stop talking about the social cost of carbon altogether. It never enters into um, uh, policy discussions anymore. It's been completely dropped by the government. My friend John Constable tried to find out why. He asked uh, the Director General of Energy at Bayes, why did you abandon the social cost of carbon? And the man replied, I think he'd had a drink by this stage, it was embarrassing. You see, we couldn't find a mitigation policy with an abatement cost even close to the social cost, let alone below it. So in other words, we were taking chemotherapy for a cold, uh, essentially. Now, um, let's 
even check whether that $51 a tonne that the US administration likes to use is moderately reasonable for the social cost of carbon. Kevin Dyeratna, Ross McKittrick and Pat Michaels uh, did a paper on this the other day and ran through some of the assumptions that go behind social cost for carbon. And um, they pointed out that uh, the, the, it was grotesquely underestimating the impact, the agricultural impact of CO2 on yields. Um, uh, the, the results from Zaijin Zhu's study imply that gains of 60%, 36%, and 22% um, are respectively right for grasslands, summer crops, and winter crops. Um, whereas it had very much smaller numbers in for that. Um, so it was vastly underestimating the carbon dioxide fertilization effect. It was understating adaptation. It was overstating climate sensitivity. And it was using extremely low discount rates, which essentially meant that uh, today's poor were asked to, being, were asked to, be, to pay for the problems of tomorrow's rich. Um, if you change the, um, uh, the, the, the sensitivity assumptions from the Roe Baker ones that they used in the fund models for uh, social cost of carbon to Lewis and Curry's calculations or Christie and McNider's ones, much more recent ones, which are much more precisely uh, estimating that a doubling of carbon dioxide will produce one to two degrees of warming, not two to four degrees of warming, um, then you get a very different outcome. Uh, so this is the mean social cost of carbon using the Christian McNider uh, climate sensitivity uh, and three different measures of agricultural productivity increase, of which they think that 30% may well be conservative, and using a 3% discount rate. And you see that they're nearly all negative. And that in 2050, the social cost of carbon will still be a net benefit under these assumptions um, uh, uh, in most of these calculations and certainly in the 30% agricultural improvements. So that's quite a challenge to the way we see the world. And it, you know, it leads me to ask you guys, if that's right, is there any hope of getting it into the political discourse? of getting people who are interested in markets to talk about it, as well as getting people who are interested in mandates to talk about it. I don't see much hope. I mean, if I stood up and said some of this stuff in the British Parliament, nobody would listen to me for 10 seconds. Um, and it's partly why I left the British Parliament. Um, uh, so, you know, that's my challenge to you, is are we really living in the real world with respect to this stuff? Oh, and if you want to hear about another story where I'm deeply unpopular, I'm giving a talk tomorrow morning about my other book. Thank you very much indeed. Questions, please, or rather answers. John. I just want to chime in on what you had to say and report from the economics community. What you're, the question you're asking is what are the overall economic benefits or costs of uh, global warming. Let's go back to the old our global warming and climate change. Uh, my review of the literature is that economists are by and large studiously not asking this question. Um, they use simple, very simplistic regression analyses on current data or some very simple models that leave out all uh, obvious things like the ones you just mentioned. And by and large, you just like to assume the answer and then go into the details. So many, many papers just say, well, we assume here's the damage function, 5% of GDP. Now let's go play with something fun like the spatial variability. And the, the lack of interest in the economics profession for asking this, the most important question, what are the economic consequences of climate change, is, is really striking. I think they know they're going to get the kinds of answers and the great uncertainty, you know. And I also ask, what to do about it. When you are very, very uncertain about something, you don't jump out the window and spend trillions and trillions of dollars. I think that's what robust control theory might, mm -hmm. might tell you. If Matt, is Matt Kahn still here? He's really the expert on, on the question. Yes. Um, 
If not, you'll have to go with me. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Steve, and then there's one back there as well. Oh, and one at the back. Yeah. So the tragedy, the intellectual tragedy in all of this is you can't, I can't, others of us, get somebody to speak to the other side. And you say, yes, but. All right? It's very weak. And they will not engage. And I think the central challenge is how do you get a rational, fact-based discourse about this? Yep. I'm not going to add to that. You're, you're, you're right. It, 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 it does. It, you know, the, uh, the in the UK, there have been attempts to get debates going on this topic for a long time, and it just doesn't happen anymore. Um, and the world has moved on, in a sense. The world has, has decided. That was 10 years ago. You could have that conversation 10 years ago. You can't have it now, because we're now talking about how we solve the problem, not whether there's a problem. Um, and yeah, I'll leave it. I'll leave the microphone operators to choose the speaker. How about that? To, to build on that point, uh, in government failure frameworks, sometimes it's spoken of how politicians experience sunk costs in having publicly committed to a particular policy, and then when that doesn't go well, they kind of they can still defend it for quite a long time because there's a great cost to admitting it was the wrong direction. And uh, last week I was part of a discussion over creation of a new sustainability institute that wanted to um, define itself around the challenge of solving climate change. And you can imagine if you built your uh, academic enterprise around that, then it becomes very difficult to, to fund or to publicize anything that would suggest that the reason for the existence of your center is, is not as serious as you thought. So it becomes an existential crisis to the, to the center. So uh, I thought I'd like to hear your thoughts on how kind of the political sunk cost has moving, moved into the academic realm and created this um, disincentive to um, publicizing, yeah. Yes, I think that's right. The, the, the bit that I find hard to understand is um, in any other scientific discipline, there eventually comes a, 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 an incentive to rock the boat, an incentive to be the heretic, uh, to say everybody's wrong, I'm Einstein or Darwin, you know, uh, I, I'm here to be a revolutionary. Now, has, has the way we fund science killed that off, or is this a special case? I think it's a special case where, you know, the, the drumbeat of consensus is such that, um, that you're not allowed to, to be a red team. And I even wonder if I didn't frighten off the global greening people like Ranga Maineni's team at Boston University by writing an article in the Wall Street Journal which allowed some activist scientists to ring them up and say, you need to tone down what you say in your papers because people like Ridley will make a noise about it. Oh my God, they said, we didn't realize that. Good point. Do you see what I mean? So <laughs> there's a, there's, these are the kinds of... Calculations. I mean, that sounds very egotistical of me, but they did mention me in the press release. So you know, some, some things like that might be happening. Um, so um, uh, there will come a point where somebody will uh, be able to make more of a noise in academia by saying the emperor has no clothes, but it hasn't happened yet. So can you comment at all on how you see um, the health damages from conventional pollution fitting into your calculations? So I'm always a little struck by how huge those seem to be based on you know top-notch epidemiology evidence and how little we hear about it. And we hear about the things that seem pretty suspect. So I'd be interested if you have observations. 
Yeah, really interesting. I mean, you know, the the big one there, the, the, the big sort of cautionary tale is the diesel story um, around uh, the year 2000. To look for a quick win on carbon dioxide, the European Union... Uh, and its crony capitalist chums coalesced around the idea that we should subsidize diesel engines um, because they produced less carbon dioxide per mile traveled um, by about 15%. Uh, and people at the time said, hang on a minute, they also produce particulates, which are damaging to people's lungs. And those people were howled down or ignored. And then it was only 20 years later when Volkswagen was found to be cheating the, the, um, the, 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 the tests um, that it turned into a scandal and suddenly the whole pop, pop policy on diesel was reversed. But you know, meanwhile in Europe we had, uh, we, we'd, we'd all switched to diesel. I mean, I, you know, I haven't had a petrol car now for 15 years. I've had diesel cars. Um, uh, I still have one actually. <laughs> but. Um, you know, there is no doubt that, I mean, uh, the, the, the air pollution in somewhere like London did improve during that time because engines got cleaner, but not as fast as it would have done if we hadn't done the diesel switch. So that's one example of the two pitted against each other. Um, I think there are other ones, I can't quite call them to mind, where, you know, the, the drive to reduce, um, well, no, I think... You know, the coal to gas transition in the electricity system is surely a gain on both fronts. And I think nobody can gainsay that. You know, I mean, the, the great thing about burning methane is that you get water and carbon dioxide. You don't get anything else out of it. Whereas with coal, you get a lot of other toxic pollutants out. Um, somebody may tell me I'm wrong on that. There may be some toxins in methane, but I don't think so. Um, so. It, so sometimes the climate imperative has driven us in the right direction, but sometimes it's driven us in the wrong direction with, return to, with, with, with respect to health harms. And I think there's no doubt that air pollution, toxic air pollution, is killing way more people um, than climate change uh, so far. Um, but I don't myself think it's a major crisis because it is going in the right direction. There's probably somebody who knows more about this in the audience. There's a, there's a hand up at the back anyway. Um, in 2012, I wrote a paper showing that the 2010 interagency working group numbers for social cost of carbon were about $10 above what they should be if you had done the math right. Basically, the computer program they had assumed that CO2 that was emitted 10 years from now would start warming today. We referred to that as uh, time-traveling CO2. <laughs> uh, and that was um, causing about a $10 increase in the social cost of carbon. Now, the journal said, check with Nordhaus. Mm -hmm. His reply was, I guess I'll just have to fix that math. He did not object. However, the EPA economists, who probably were involved in uh, coming up with the numbers, they wrote a long and incoherent uh, response. Um, no, these guys, they, once they have their numbers, uh, and like I said, Nordhaus had no, no pushback to, on our criticism of, of his math, um, but the EPA did. Well, I, like you, I have enormous respect for William Nordhaus. I think I think uh, he's uh, he, he was always an honest and good calculator of this kind of thing, and it's it's not the original attempt to calculate this stuff that's that's wrong. It's it's as you say the reluctance to, 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 to publish a number that might be lower than they want it to be. It, I think we call that um, policy-based evidence-making. <laughs> <laughs> One last question. 
Hi. Um, thank you very much for the talk today. Um, it's really eye-opening to somebody who works in climate technology. Uh, I, still, I can't see where you are. Oh, I'm right here. Oh, there, there you go. Sorry. Yep. Uh, so why do, I have a, because I'm the last question, I'm going to take the liberty of asking several questions. Um, uh, first, why do you think that there isn't more debate in the economics uh, academic community about the net cost or benefit, if there is, in, uh, in the price of carbon? And then, you know, I noticed in your charts you had a lot of long-term averages. Have you looked at the derivative, the, the change in slope over time, and is that significant? And then also noticed on the chart uh, of the uh, ocean acidification that there's a, a turn in the curve at about 600 um, ppm. And have you thought about some kind of a, a fat tail associated with some unknown? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, taking them in reverse order. Um, as I say, I think that um, uh, uh, chart on what, what the corals do in response to higher CO2 is an appalling piece of um, bad uh, drawing of lines, as it were, because you know the, the number might go up beyond 600 and then come down. He doesn't have any data points between 600 and 2,500, so so it, it, it's hard to tell uh, from that. Uh, but remember, 600 is a long way off. You know, 600 parts per million. We're not going to reach that till Steve 2080, something like that. Like a century. A century? Yeah, maybe it's like So, tw so 21, 23. So come back to me in 21, 23, and we'll, we'll decide on that. Um, uh, is, is there a, a, an inflection point in some of these charts? I think the sea level one is the interesting one there. There are claims of an acceleration beginning to show up in the sea level data. And you could actually see it just on, on my chart. Um, but it very much depends on you know, whether you get a, a, a few years with, with uh, you know, that it, it, the acceleration looked more marked a few years ago than it does now, I think. Um, is that right? Um, so it's sort of, it, it's, uh, we still don't, can't be sure. But if it is an acceleration, it's not much of one yet. Um, uh, uh, so I, I don't, I don't, you know, we don't see inflection points. One of the great phenomena that uh, has faded, actually, is the turning point story, the tipping points. Um, a big part of the early scare about climate change was, you know, the shutting down of the Gulf Stream, um, the collapse of me the, the, the sudden eruption of methane in the Arctic, um, various other stories about what might happen suddenly when you reached a certain temperature. The, the confidence in those has gone away dramatically. And part of it is because of knowing just how warm the planet was eight or 9,000 years ago uh, at the Holocene climatic optimum. You know, we've been at temperatures like this before, not while we were um, a civilization, but while we were around as hunter-gatherers. And there was no um, that it appeared not to run away into anything at, at that point. Uh, so I think it's, you know, serious climate scientists, and again I'm looking at Steve, um, don't really think that the dramatic tipping points around the corner. Um, I called this in my book, The Rational Optimist, I call this turning point itis, because uh, going back hundreds of years, I found uh, gloomsters were always keen to say, yes, it's been great till now, but you wait, it's about to get worse. There's a sort of narcissism in thinking that you are at the inflection point of history. Um, everything's been fine till now, but it's about to get worse. There was a paper published a year ago that looked at eight different tipping points economic impacts for what it's worth. It's another percent. Okay. One percent in GDP and twenty one hundred. Right. Well, let me uh, again close uh, the session. Uh, thanks again to the Blank Foundation. Thanks to all of you for your ears and your rears. Uh, thanks for staying the whole day. And, uh, and especially thanks to Matt and uh, to
cap it all off by a big thing of spirit wine somewhere outside. But, but don't drink too much. Stanford can't afford the losses. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Dan. Thank you.